0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 49 Writers Active Voice Podcast conversations with writers and artists in these challenging times. I'm host and producer Katie Bosler. In this episode, we focus on Dreaming Home, a powerful collection of six linked short stories on the outing of a gay teenager by his younger sister, his father's violent reaction, and how that trauma ripples through the course of four decades. The stories, set in Texas, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Florida, deftly weave issues like conversion therapy, queer youth homelessness, combat veteran PTSD, and the AIDS pandemic. Since its summer 2023 release, Dreaming Home has made the best books lists of the New York Times, The Globe and Mail, Lambda Literary Review, and more. With me on the line from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, is the author of Dreaming Home, Lucian Childs. Hello Lucian.
1: Hello Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I I was just in Alaska for two weeks and so this is a a great to be kind of back in in a way.
0: Yes and I was lucky enough to catch you at the writer's block in Anchorage where um, you were part of a panel discussion and presentation. Uh, where our own James Hoagland with the Alaskan AIDS Assistance Association from Juneau joined you.
1: Yes, I was really so happy that Boris was able to join us in that program. Even though uh, I would have to say this book isn't really about these topical issues, which you just enumerated so well, but they really do form the background. You cannot talk about uh, San Francisco in the 80s and mid-90s without talking about AIDS. And so it was great to have James on board to really provide some background to that material and to talk about his work in Alaska with the 49 writers.
0: Well, also, I want to congratulate you on your first publication as an author. And to get us familiar with the stories in Dreaming Home, can you give us the What is this book about? Answer.
1: Well, you know, it's being marketed as a coming out story. But I I think, you know, marketers have to kind of simplify the pitch so that people will, in a few seconds, think they understand the book. And and also, booksellers would be able to shelve it in the place they think that it will do best in the market. But I think of it really as a family drama of this one Texas family, the Mullins, and what happens to them after this traumatic event that happens to Kyle, the, uh, the boy in the family, and how that splits the family up and causes realignment. The daughter aligns herself with the father and the mother aligns herself with the son. So I think of it as a uh, documentation of the effects of childhood trauma uh, and how it plays out with this family. But I have to say, it sounds like it's all rather dire. It's also pretty funny in sections. So I like to, to blend the two, the humor and the and the poignancy.
0: Well, a fascinating figure in this book is Kyle's mother, Diane, who actually moves in with her son and his partner to their San Francisco apartment and Won't move out. What is Diane's role in these stories?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, You know, I think that she is just so guilty over what happened to her son and her part in it, because she really didn't do anything to prevent uh, Kyle from being taken to the conversion therapy, that to, to sort of assuage herself of that guilt, she becomes overly protective of her son to the point where she travels to San Francisco repeatedly and then finally moves in downstairs and kind of takes over. She starts with coffee, I think, and the next thing she's making gones and pastries, and then she's providing them with full breakfast in the morning and cleaning the house. So she and Kyle become uh, completely enmeshed in uh, ways that is healthy and beautiful but also in ways that are are, uh, not so healthy.
0: And also a reader could see it as her way of trying to make things right after this horrific uh, beating that Kyle has taken from his father. Now, I know this is hard to read, and I imagine, let alone write, but can you read for us the scene that infuses the rest of the stories in this book, Kyle's flashbacks to when he is beaten by his father at the age of 15?
1: Okay, um, so now Kyle is, I believe he's 24, yes, he's homeless, he's living in his car, and um, he is basically being awoken from his sleep, and he is having this flashback. This is from the Kyle section. Darkness, then a dull awareness, a floating sensation of dread, his father's face looming out of the void. An angry mask, the human in it warped beyond recognition. His father bellowing, arms raised overhead. Thwack, a red memory of pain spreads across Kyle's forehead. Thwack, a fire this time running along his jaw. Kyle blinked, then blinked again. In the strobing light, the hood of his old Chevy Vega, a dark lattice of cypress limbs. Below, a net of street lamps and porch lights. Whack, no pain, a voice, not his father's. Kyle turned his head toward the sound, opened his eyes into the blinding white. A beam of light jerked across the boxes in the back seat. Silhouetted against a red rock cliff, a young woman stood outside his car, rapping on the window, San Francisco police. Kyle lived in fear of this, each evening switching his sleeping spots.
0: So this painful uh, passage touches on the effects of, of trauma on an individual, a horrible trauma in this case, but it also touches on the issue of queer, unhoused teens in big cities like San Francisco. What did you learn about this issue in writing the book?
1: Well, it's interesting because in a way, this piece is almost like historical fiction. I had lived in San Francisco during these years. I knew of these things obliquely, but I then had to do research to verify whether or not my recollections of this time were were true. And one of the things I learned was that fully, there's something like, according to the True Colors Fund, uh, there's something like 42 million youth are homeless every year. And 40% of those are LGTBQ+. So that makes Considering that you know, we're supposedly only a tenth of the population, that means that the inordinate amount of homeless youth are queer. And they're usually, it tends to be, they're usually younger than Kyle is. He's 24 in this scene. A lot of times it's these kids that get kicked out of their families when they're in their teens, when they uh, come out to their parents or they're found out to be gay by their parents. and they. Many of them flee to San Francisco because it's a kind of mecca for gay people. So it's a a huge problem even now. Yes,
0: and Kyle did experience this trauma, this beating, at the age of 15. But he he has a more winding path to being homeless on the streets of San Francisco.
1: Right. Instead of leaving home like many queer youth do, he stuck it out through the end of high school. And then as soon as he got his diploma— basically he threw his cap and gown in the in the trash and split and never came back and he waited until he was 18 till he left the family and left texas
0: right speaking of trauma i mean that the good news about awareness of trauma these days is um people are much more aware of it affecting many people and how that can resonate throughout the decades of your life and each character in this book has experienced a trauma that they carry with them for, for decades. Can you tell us, is this what really fuels the the entire novel?
1: I think of this traumatic incident of the beating that Kyle receives and then the conversion therapy It's sort of like a pebble that gets dropped into a still pond. The book examines the ripples coming out from the center, and so for me, Trauma is a difficult thing to, to write about because it tends to be kind of monolithic. People have tend to have depression, a hard time forming, sustaining relationships, a difficulty succeeding in their profession. These issues are, you know, amazing to explore, and many people have explored them. But I felt that I didn't want to have 200 pages of Kyle staring up at the ceiling in the kind of fugue state, which he does often in the book. So to me, it was more interesting to see how the rest of the family members uh, adapted to the situation. And then, of course, later, Kyle's uh, two lovers, Robert and, and Jason.
0: There's also, I must say, a lightness and humor in this book, and I really appreciate that as a reader. For example, when Kyle's partner, Robert, arrives home to this scene, where Diane, Kyle's mom, is serving up a, let's say, Mexican night at their apartment. Buenas noches, Diane said in her perky Texas accent. She was holding a tray with three festively colored cocktail glasses that I had never seen before. Inside each, under a salted rim, pooled a sickly green liquid. Folks, it's margarita time. On the stereo, a woman sang about missing the wide nighttime sky smeared with diamonds, hitting the high notes at an ear-splitting volume. Could we please turn that off, I said. I didn't know you liked country music, Diane. We're Texans, Robert. At night to early in the morn, you can't escape it. Was that something that came uh, in the first drafts, or did you have to kind of balance things out, as it were?
1: That's just me, you know. I, I used to get a, a Kenyan review, uh, a writer's workshop a lot, and Dinti Moore, who is a pretty famous nonfiction writer known for blending the serious with the humorous, he paid me the most amazing compliment. He says, you know, I really like your work, one of the best of the students here, and I said, really? Why? And he said, well, think about it. You blend humor and seriousness just like I do, and I was kind of like felt like i was on cloud nine fantastic workshop well (laughs) well until the next day when you like it'll fail spectacular work spectacularly in the in the next workshop it's up and down with writing as i'm sure you know yes it's a um, roller coaster it, it certainly is other people that i really admire are lori moore who's also really known for that she'll tear your heart out in one paragraph, and in the same paragraph, she'll make you laugh. My mentor, uh, Carolyn Addison, is also very adept at this. But it really just comes natural to me. I, I like the blending of the humorous and the difficult. It's, it does have distinct advantages. I mean, if you had a 200 pages though, that were just extremely dour, it'd be a, a pretty tough read. Some of the chapters are, are pretty funny, and uh, a lot of the humor uh, comes from these sort of oversized characters, most of them women.
0: Yes, uh, Diane, and then uh, Kyle's sister, Rachel, who is a. Hoot. Oh, yeah,
1: a uh, total hoot. And Rebecca, who's a, a, a smaller character. But oh, she's yes. Also, who, even though we don't meet her, we kind of get a sense of her. Elaine, the grandmother, who is, uh, as we say in Texas, a kick in the pants. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and also I think you
0: had some fun with the the gay culture at that time in San Francisco.
1: And yeah, definitely. You know, because as much as you love it, you know it, it is easily parodied, and I, I don't think. You know, sort of on purpose. You know, the whole camp sensibility is a sort of a parody in itself. And so I write in the Diane starts volunteering at Roberts Agency, which is the largest AIDS assistance organization in the Bay Area and She's quickly taken in by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and the Drag Queens <laughs> and the leather men, And, you know, the outfits she wear, wears are sometimes pretty outrageous. So, oh, yes. That was a lot of fun. Great
0: descriptions. <laughs> well, you know, I was an 18-year-old college freshman at San Francisco State in 1980. Yeah. When Kaposi's sarcoma was first discovered in a patient in San Francisco. Yeah. And that... AIDS epidemic continued through my graduation in 1986. I was a member of the Gay-Straight Alliance, and while I don't recall losing any friends, I do remember the beautiful people who led the club. And you worked with AIDS patients in the 1980s in San Francisco. What was that like, and how did that experience shape Dreaming Home?
1: Well, a little bit. I, I would say that I was really on the sidelines. Um, uh, so many people were right on the in the trenches. But I did work at the helpline that uh, Diane volunteers with for the AIDS organization. I did have my resource book in front of me at all times when answering calls. The most involvement I really had was I was very involved in Zen Buddhism at the time. And I and The mother, gay men, started a, it started out as a kind of gay, general gay Buddhist club, but quickly became a a Zen uh, meditation center. And we, at one point, invited our teacher, Isan Dorsey, to uh, take up residence there. And very quickly, he started taking in AIDS patients if there was an empty room. And that went on to, they then. Uh, entered into a relationship with the man who bought the house next door and it became a full-fledged hospice and that hospice exists Mm. today so I used to visit with AIDS patients and talk to them and massage them and uh, and then of course all of us knew many people who died at that time so I was you know involved with it again obliquely that way too and speaking of
0: the, the Zen Buddhist theme, you do bring that through just beautifully taking place in the scenes, the passages where Jason, Kyle's now ex, is living uh, in the shadow of Mount Tamalpais Pius near Muir Beach and mm-hmm. really struggling with this transition as Kyle has left him for Puerto Rico to build his dream house with a larger-than-life female character, Rebecca. Right. Rebequita. Oh, <laughs> Rebe- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rebequita, yes.
1: <laughs> I have a Rebequita of my own life who lives in, in Anchorage, but this one is Puerto Rican. Uh, yeah, so some of that is <clears throat> happened sort of accidentally, I have to say. I, for some reason, I, I had him moving out to the Marin Headland at the site of Tamil and very near to there is Green Gulch Farm. So mm-hmm. you just kind of follow these things where they take you. And I'm like, well, he's living close to the Zen Center. He's a fourth generation Japanese American. Mightn't he um, go down the road and check that out? And indeed, he does, and is rather appalled at first to see all these non Japanese people uh, walking around with black robes from the 19th century and and bowing to each other. He um, soon finds of solace in the meditational practice that is carried through that whole story.
0: Mm, yes, and I, I just, as a reader, really appreciated uh, those passages, especially being more f- familiar with that gorgeous environment. I'm a perennial English major, and I mark pages with those sticky bookmarks when I come across exceptional yeah. writing. Yeah, and yeah. I, I must say, Uh, My copy of Dreaming Home is full of them. Uh, Getting back to the darker side, you connect the San Francisco Bay Area earthquake of 1989 with the tragedy of AIDS. Could you read the passage addressing that?
1: Well, um, I do bring in the Loma Preta uh, uh, earthquake in the Diane section, but we're uh, actually talking about the Oakland firestorm of 1991. Oh, okay. Okay. But the, the earthquake does play in there too, because Diane is uh, uh, is uh, volunteering at the De Young Museum, which was severely damaged during the Loma Prieta earthquake. So, mm-hmm. but th- that was a little bit later. This is the Oakland firestorm. So um, this is Robert speaking. Each of the um, chapters is in the point of view from a different character. Some of them are in first person, some of them are in third. And this one is first person from the point of view of Robert, who is Kyle's lover. He is 20 years older than Kyle, and he's the one who is executive director of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. So they're sitting outside right now. It's a balmy October night. Kyle and I were having Cosmos out on the deck observing the disaster across the way. billowy gray towers of smoke. From their insides, a red, sinister glow that burst at times into bright yellow flames. It had burned like that for days. Already people were calling it the Great Oakland Firestorm of 1991. Nearby, in the Castro, another kind of conflagration. All those beautiful runaways, The men who had fled to the city seeking freedom reduced now to scarecrows. All the signs now pointed to a new phase, Kyle said, gesturing to the dual spectacles below. The days of profligate sex were over. That word, profligate, sounded so old-fashioned, almost biblical. We locked hands and swore an oath to monogamy while men died practically at our feet. And across the bay, houses were reduced to coal and ash.
0: And, you know, that speaks to what's happening now as well with the forest fire is also an epidemic.
1: Mm -hmm. And of course, AIDS is still very much happening in San Francisco now. I mean, it's vastly Mm -hmm. changed. It's People liken it to diabetes now. People can lead long and healthy lives on it. And people are also taking this thing called uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis PrEP, which uh, helps to prevent the virus, I guess, from taking hold. If-
0: this book was released in the shadow of LBG. TQIA plus people being used as political footballs. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, when I was writing it, this, uh, this book was uh, based on stories that were, some of which are 12, 13, 14 years old. So, of course, there was no inkling of that sort of thing then. In fact, there seemed to be uh, just an upward trajectory of uh, more and more rights culminating with the uh, gay marriage. So this uh book really does not speak to that. It ends in twenty fifteen, but I think about it as a person and as a as a gay man. It's very scary to see what's happening right now of rights being eroded. And you know, Thomas uh Justice Thomas uh talked about revisiting the gay marriage uh decision because he didn't like the legal basis that it was founded on. And the way trans people are being demonized in the United States is just uh, extremely scary and unfortunate that uh, they're being used as pawns, it seems to me. And um, it's just sad and, and scary. And it, I have to say, I, I take no pleasure in saying this, but it does make me feel somewhat better. Uh, having made the decision to live in Canada, because uh, even though we're not immune to that kind of stuff, it doesn't have the legislative traction uh, that it does in the United States.
0: As a reader, I think this book can help, if you will, people to to understand more and just that we're all human beings.
1: I think so. And to me, the fact that it really is a a book about family. And so you see these characters, I mean, I think probably some people wish it was a gayer book, you know, I mean, even though some of it is set in the gay community, it's really about this family dynamic. Yes. uh, About the loss of home and uh, the, uh, the trying to Reconstruct home as Kyle does, and as I believe Jason and Rachel do at the end. That's another reconstruction of home. Exactly,
0: um, yes. Because as I understand, that story, the last chapter of the book, was the first story that you wrote in this collection. Is that correct? Yeah. And it it's really. Let me con- how these
1: things turn out.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah. And it really concludes with a lightness between Kyle's ex, Jason, and his younger sister, Kyle's younger sister, Rachel, almost like their brother and sister.
1: Yeah, and you, and you have that little dog too. Oh, right, uh, of course. Several people have said this is like the reconstitution of the family. And but the then, dog you know, is, a, is hysterical.
0: Uh, the dog is definitely the a character is, in this book. Is,
1: and where in the heck did that dog come from? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like during the rewrites, because uh, that's changed uh, dramatically somehow I just thought well she has a little dog (laughs) and and that dog became so important in the story and especially at the end and that's one of the magical things about writing you just have no idea where these things come from you just gotta go with it
0: (laughs) yeah that is so interesting how that dog just sort of appeared um, in your consciousness with the act of writing
1: yeah yeah
0: (laughs) Well, uh, tell us how these stories were generated, how this book was birthed, because you started with separate stories, and this is now a novel.
1: I'm glad you say that, because I think most people do feel it is a novel, and sometimes when I point out to readers that it, uh, didn't you notice that each of the chapters was actually a story, and they go, "Well, well, yeah, I guess, but it seemed like a novel to me. And uh, so I feel like I've done my job because that was the task that was set out to me. So I initially thought I was just going to collect my short stories, which is what people do when you get to a certain point, you collect the stories. But I'm always striving to get better at this. I don't have a degree in creative fiction. So I thought, let me get some help. And I enlisted the help of uh, Carolyn Addison and her first suggestion was to link the stories. There were 12 of them at the time. And I said, what are you crazy? And uh, they were written 10 years, 12 years apart. But the more I thought about it, it did seem like I divided stories into two groups of six, that each of those groups did have an implied narrative arc. And so we worked on that for about nine months. And then we, the book got into the hands of her mentor, because writing is a lot of times from one mentor to the other, and uh, I'm not saying that she helped me jump the queue or anything like that, but she did suggest that I send it to him, and I did, and he decided to take it, provided that I strengthened the narrative overall narrative arc. So we worked for another nine months to make it be more novelistic, We added a story we reorganized the stories so that in the end I got to have my cake and eat it too I got to be a novelist but I still got to be a short story writer which I always feel that I am
0: and were you able to include everything you started with or is is there a part two or are you happy with with this
1: well, yes. There were six stories in the second group that he elected not to publish at this time. And so I keep joking with people, I'm too busy being a writer to write, you know, <laughs> going around and going to Alaska. Now I'm going to Texas. And so I'm just itching, as we say in Texas, to get back to these this other set of stories. Okay. And I have a plan to really strengthen that overarching narrative so it feels uh, like this one more like a novel.
0: And now that you've worked with these mentors, do you feel more like you know what you're doing, as it were?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's such a funny question because, uh, yeah, and no. Yes, it's like, if you, it's just like exercising, right? If you go to the gym every day, it's all of a sudden it's kind of amazing what you can do. You exactly. Didn't think you could ever, you know, walk up flat top like that. And, I know a lot of us um, have to
0: remind ourselves of that.
1: Every spring, when you, you know, you had sort of maybe a, a not so active winter, you decide to go up flat top or bird ridge, and you realize that you're not quite in shape like you thought. But, uh, yeah, I. You know, I realize, yeah you know, sometimes I read that read the book, and I go, "I have no idea who wrote this. It's like you develop a facility that's larger than yourself, and but then you also have to realize that you haven't a clue, so that you'll always be sort of flailing around in the darkness, and that's just the nature of of writing fiction, and I think that's kind of the way it needs to be well, this
0: novel. Your debut, Dreaming Home, uh, was a long time coming, and you are, how old are you?
1: (laughs) I have published my debut novel at the very young age of 74 years old, (laughs) which is, I don't know if that's a record, but there haven't been too many debut novelists at that age. But that's just the way it played out. I had a full life, and a lot of that life is, shows up in this book. You know, I worked in architecture for many years, and there's quite a bit of architecture in the book.
0: Yes, Kyle is uh, an architect. I was a Zen,
1: yeah, I was a Zen Buddhist for many years, and that worked its way in there. So none of that experience was lost. And, um, so you're
0: able to take all of these life experiences over seven decades and— write from that experience. Lucian, you are an inspiration to the many of us still writing and not published in the third act of our (laughs) lives. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I mean, I just think the message is read a lot, write a lot, try to get better. It's a hard thing, you know, to write fiction, but just try to get better at it and seek out I mean, I wrote about this at a 49 Writers blog called Finding Your Literary Family. Seek out other writers, go to workshops, find your mentors, you know, find your fellow travelers. And I have been so assisted over this long course by so many people. By the 49 Writers, uh, um, I would not have written, I would not be who I am today as a writer without the 49ers, and in fact, writers. And in fact, the second story in the book it grew out of a, uh, a point of view exercise that I did in a 49 writers class that Andromeda Romana Lax taught. So there is a direct link between this wonderful organization and this book,
0: Great point to end on. Lucian Childs, thank you so much for joining me on 49 Writers Active Voice. Thanks for listening to this episode with Lucian Childs on his debut and well-reviewed novel, Dreaming Home. Looking forward already to the sequel. The 49 Writers Active Voice podcast is a forum for conversations with writers in these challenging times. Please subscribe and follow the 49 Writers Active Voice podcast on Apple, Spotify, and 49writers.org. And please help spread the word by liking 49 Writers' active voice or sharing it with friends and family. This conversation was recorded at KTOO Juno. Music by Liz Snyder and Alex Kutlars. I'm Katie Bosler.